Two and a Half Admins, Episode 1. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Jim. So here we are for the first episode. No one knows about this. Let's see if this goes well. We're going to do a couple of tech news stories and then do a bit of free consulting. I've got a question about offsite backups for you guys, which hopefully you're going to help me with. But let's start with Amazon and their affiliate program. And they've cut this week the affiliate rates and basically fucked over a lot of people. Yeah. Although, you know, anybody who didn't see this coming was deluding themselves. Like, it made sense 10 plus years ago when people didn't do a lot of shopping online and not everybody knew what Amazon was. But now everybody is very familiar with Amazon. And so I'm surprised they're still paying anybody anything at all. I think the only value that the affiliate stuff still provides is now that Amazon is so full of crap, is that someone has taken the time to curate and pick out the, the useful things and provide links to them in exchange for a kickback. And so I don't think they're going to get rid of it entirely, but you know, this isn't the first time they've done large cutbacks or previously what they had done is just, let's look at our top earners and find some way to kick them out of the program. I, I guess color me deluded because I didn't see it coming because there is... Yeah, there's a significant value add coming from these affiliates that are recommending specific products, just trying to shop blind on Amazon when you don't know exactly the product you want is a nightmare. I mean, all of the ratings are astroturfed, you know, way up to the fours and fives. You know, I do IT consulting work, and a lot of the time that involves supplying parts directly to customers. And I had set up an Amazon affiliate account for myself. I hadn't actually done anything with it yet, but I had been seriously considering you know, steering a bunch of people to products that I knew worked well using an affiliate link on Amazon, um, you know, in addition to or even supplanting a lot of the time me buying them and reselling them directly. And the rates already really weren't any higher than you can get just out of the Amazon American Express card. I mean, you get 5% across the board on that. So um, I, I don't see that they saved a lot. And the fact that they timed this like right in the middle of the COVID outbreak while people are struggling for work and for money and while their own sales are through the roof. Mm -hmm. That's some crappy PR, man. Well, yeah, there's definitely that aspect to it. And, you know, for a lot of affiliate type people, you know, if, when Amazon, you know, if you're trying to order an SSD off Amazon, half the time they're like, yeah, we're not going to ship that for a month. So I'm guessing a lot of people's sales were down already because people have, you know, put off non-essential purchases uh, and, and that type of thing. And then, you know, the other competition I see is, is Amazon's been launching their Amazon for business or whatever, the, the business shopping account and trying to push businesses into that. Um, your point about the credit card is interesting, although I'm guessing a good chunk of that 5% is paid for by Amex, not by Amazon. Maybe. Uh, it doesn't really matter much to me either way, honestly. Well, it doesn't matter to you. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Do, do I set things up where I have to deal with all that and Amazon has to deal with the additional limitations to the amount of sales I can do? Because like I can resell parts locally, fine. But I think that Amazon potentially derives a lot of value from somebody like me, you know, being able to tell the people that email me. And, you know, it's a constant stream of people on email and on Twitter, you know, hey, what mesh Wi-Fi kit do I get? Or, you know, what laptop is good? People just go, hey, just go right here. It's all curated. Mm -hmm. Everything there is good. Just buy it and you're done. Um, I feel like they're leaving sales on the table by taking that option away. And I'm simultaneously kind of patting myself on the back for being lazy and not setting that up and having wasted the work now that it's worthless and like kicking myself because in theory, I could have set that up a year ago and at least gotten some money through before they slammed the door on it. Yeah, I think... 
you know, it's mostly that Amazon is so big they think they don't need affiliates anymore. And there are places where I think you're right that the affiliates still do add a lot of value, especially to the customer. But it's it's hard to tell what Amazon's motivation behind some of these things are. Money. I think it's just the beginning and the end of it. Just screw it. We can make more money this way. And they don't really care. Yeah. And they've been screwing the people that sell the stuff on Amazon quite hard a number of different ways as well. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that really gets my goat about the whole thing is uh, a, a little birdies have told me that, you know, these these cuts right now, they're just hitting little people. They're hitting people that run Facebook groups. They're hitting, you know, small consultants like me. Uh, so far, nothing has changed with the the big, you know, media distribution places like, you know, like Wirecutter, for example, which is great for Wirecutter because they would be truly screwed if they had been subject to these cuts because it's basically their entire revenue. Mm -hmm. But for right now, you know, big places that have their own individual special snowflake deals are doing fine. Uh, it's it's little folks that are getting screwed here, the ones who can least afford it right now. Yeah, the, the timing is really bad. Like I remember having similar experiences when I uh, was doing drop shipping on eBay, when suddenly having 10,000 products listed on eBay went from it's free and you pay a commission on everything you sell to, oh, we want a couple of cents for every listing every 30 days uh, and still that giant chunk every time you sell something. Uh, and it just completely pulled the business model out from underneath us and we had to build our own website and stuff instead of just using eBay. Well, I know some guys who uh, run a podcast network and a few years ago, Amazon just cut them off and that amounted to about a third of their operating revenue. These are, you know, professional podcast guys and they just didn't know what to do. Their business was basically ruined. So they had to just reach out to the community who all chipped in a bunch of money and saved them. But the Amazon just has a, a history of this, right? Like if anyone makes any serious money, they just get cut off. And now it looks like no one will be making any serious money with some of these rates being cut in less than half sometimes like it, some of them were like 10 percent, and now they're like two or three percent yeah i saw the one is like the home and garden stuff went from eight percent to three percent i think this could end up being a pretty large foot gun for amazon I, I think they probably feel like they're invulnerable you know who else are you going to go to but there actually are other places to go to there are other retailers you know for computer stuff uh, there's Newegg for general purpose stuff. You know, there's everything from Staples to Walmart to Wish, you mm -hmm. know, to AliExpress to you name it. And part of the reason that Amazon has enjoyed, you know, such a commanding advantage, I'm not going to say that, you know, by any means that it's all affiliate, whatever, but the fact that like everybody has kind of settled on Amazon is where you send people to buy things. That's a lot of what has given this, them this advantage. And I don't think it's permanent. I think it can disappear if they're not careful. And actually Newegg as well need to be careful with the, this way they've been letting other people sell stuff on their platform. Uh, and oftentimes the the listings and so on are just so junky. Uh, it's like there's no specs, there's no pictures. It's like, you know, I, I need the basic stuff to be able to decide if this is right. Or the other one you've heard of on uh, Amazon is be careful buying hard drives on Amazon because they might be the OEM ones. They're brand new, but they don't actually come with a warranty. Unlike if you have bought you know, paid the same price for one that was meant to be sold individually. All right. Well, you mentioned hard drives. Let's move on then and talk about these SMR drives. Some idiot over at Ars Technica wrote about that. Yeah. So SMR stands for shitty mag. I mean, shingled magnetic recording. <laughs> uh, the performance on these drives is absolutely 
atrocious. Well, it, it, the performance for certain operations, yes. Well, you know, so it's it's kind of like the difference between uh, where I was going to go with this is it's, it's like the difference between AWS and Glacier in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah, there are appropriate uses for SMR drives, but the kinds of things that most people are expecting to just drop an arbitrary hard drive into a system and do, SMR is, you know, I don't think it's unfair to say it's incredibly disappointing at best. Yeah. Uh, you have a very limited amount of non-SMR cache area uh, that's just encoded traditional, conventional, you know, perpendicular magnetic recording at the head of the drive. And incoming writes are dumped there for the meantime, and then the drive has to trickle those in the background out to the shingled magnetic recording area on the entire rest of the drive. And the sequential write performance is by far <laughs> the best performance aspect of mm-hmm. that shingled magnetic recording technology. And it's only good for about 40 megabytes a second. Uh, that's on a perfect sequential write workload. And that compares to on just a cheap run-of-the-mill desktop drive. You know, typically these days, somewhere around about 120 megabytes per second on the same workload. And if you're talking about random access, it gets considerably worse than that. I mean, you can be down into the kilobytes per second on SMR, where perpendicular drives would still at least have you, you know, somewhere in the fives or tens of megabytes per second. Right, because uh, the the big difference there, like the read's not so bad on SMR, because the basic concept of SMR is on a hard drive, the read head uh, doesn't need to be very big, but the write head does. And so you can put the tracks really close together and still be able to read them. The problem is when you write, you would clobber multiple tracks. And so they overlay the tracks like shingles on a roof. And the idea is that um, the hard drive is broken up into zones that are usually about 256 megabytes. Uh, and the zones are basically append only. You start at the beginning and you start writing and you can never overwrite in place. You have to go all the way to the end. And then at some other point, you take all the data that's left, move it somewhere else and erase the whole 256 megabytes and then start writing it from the beginning again. And so, yeah, if you're doing any kind of write, random writes, the drive's just going to curl up in a ball and die because it's going to buffer those writes out into that small a bit of uh, regular space it has or the higher end SMR drives had some RAM or something uh, like some flash for it but that you know most people bought or are doing SMR to save money so they've kind of moved away from the concept of using flash for the buffer so you're doing your bunch of random writes into this other area and then it's having to like read all 256 megabytes rewrite it somewhere else on the drive compacted without all the spaces in it and then append your other data and the other problem is you generally end up with a hard drive that has to have something equivalent to the the flash translation layer you have in an ssd of keeping track of oh that block's actually over here now and now it's over here and now it's over here whereas your you know your typical file system knows that that block of the file is on this sector number, which is a specific place on the hard drive. So now even your sequential reads aren't necessarily sequential because everything's got shuffled under the blankets and you can't see what's going on. So you know your low-end Barracuda drives and stuff, are they SMR then? Uh, Yeah, the majority of them are now. So that was the thing that I found the most interesting when this kind of came out is in the past, all SMR drives were marketed as you know, archive hard drives. And like, these are good if you're going to write the data once and never modify it, because that's what SMR is good at. And it can hold lots of data, but if you have to go back and change something about it, it gets really hairy. But if you don't do that a lot, because, you know, it's like your media archive or something, maybe it'd be okay. But then they started doing it for all of the basically hard drives that are below the point where they're pushing the size. So 
basically anything under six or eight terabytes now, where they're just trying to make as many of them as they can, as cheaply as they can. They're just using SMR for it to to give them more margin, you know, make more money off less platters, I guess. Yeah. And this is another one of those things where I get really upset at the motivations and how it's carried out because, you know, it's I'm already not happy with somebody saying, oh, well, you know, SMR is fine for a desktop drive. You know, nobody needs much performance there. That'll it'll just be bursting. And everything will be fine. Well, you know, really, no, it won't. But above and beyond that, you know, at least make the damn thing cheaper. I mean, the only reason to do SMR in these teeny tiny drives, you know, two terabytes and up is to be able to omit a platter from the build. Um, it's absolutely slower in every possible way. It's just a little cheaper to manufacture, but when you actually price these WD Red drives, uh, when you look at the SMR model and the CMR model side by side, same drive, each supposedly a NAS drive from the same line, same capacity, they're either the same price or in a lot of cases, the SMR drives are actually a few bucks more. Yeah, that was the part that really got me is that, you know, at least Seagate was very clear that we never do this for the drives we market as NAS drives, but Western Digital... First of all, the fact that they don't tell you, you know, on the desktop drives, maybe you can get away with that. But on NAS drives, specifically, we've always heard SMR and, and RAID don't mix because you can't have the drive doing things under the hood while you're trying to to do RAID or resilver or anything. And then so Western Digital being like, yeah, well, it doesn't work for RAID, but we're selling them as NAS drives, which the whole point of specially tuned NAS drives is that they're meant to work in RAID and to have the you know, time limited error recovery and all these features specifically for RAID. Well, well to be to be clear here, um, and this is in no way a defense of Western Digital, but just in the interest of the accuracy, they are not saying it won't work for RAID. Western Digital is saying it does work for RAID. And if it's not working for RAID in your NAS, you're doing it wrong. Open a ticket and we'll help you with your individual one-off use case where it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, at first they were denying that they were using SMR. Right. Uh, so I have some links in the, in the show notes here where they're like, uh, there's a, a ticket for SmartMon tool where they're trying to like, you know, flag this drive as, as being SMR and Western says, no, it's not. It's not SMR. Uh, and then later they admitted, actually, yes, it is. Yeah. You know, I, I'm really not okay with Seagate submarining those things in the desktop channel either. No. Like, how hard is it to, to just, you know, as a footnote, only people that know what they're doing are going to know what it means. So you're not going to really sell any fewer of these desktop drives to anybody that's not using them specifically for RAID. Because at least, you know, Seagate still says you probably don't want to use them for RAID. It's it's not great. Right. Well, you know, the thing, so Seagate, basically, they're saying the same thing about the desktop channel as Western Digital is about the NAS channel. They're saying, oh, it'll be okay for this use case. It'll be fine. And the the other thing is they're saying, you know, we don't need to tell you about that. And to a degree, I, I get the idea that there's only so much you want to drown, you know, the the desktop channel in data. They don't really pay attention to a whole lot of stuff. They just want to buy the thing and be done. To that point, if you say SMR, either one of two things is going to happen. Uh, well, I should say one of three things. Either it's going to be a user who has no idea what that means and it doesn't influence their purchasing decision in any way. Or it's going to be a user who does know what that means and is okay with it. Or it's going to be a user who knows what that means and doesn't want it. And so to omit, you know, literally just those three letters, just put the three letters SMR somewhere in your product description. That's it. You don't even have to define it. To omit that basically means you're saying we think our sales numbers will be lower if we admit what these things are. So we're not willing to do that. Yeah. Well, and then Western Digital trying to come out and say, you know, uh, 
anybody having trouble with SMRs because they're overusing their drives and they should just buy yeah. more expensive drives. I'm like, it's a hard drive. There's never been this concept of overusing a hard drive before. You just invented that to try to force people to buy the more expensive drives because you know, nobody was bothering because there wasn't a difference between the desktop and the, the NAS drives at the time. Again, to be fair, there is that concept of overuse. I mean, all the drives are rated in a total number of you know terabytes written per year um, that they're rated for. Well, that's a relatively new concept, honestly. It's a relatively new concept for people to pay attention to, but it's been in the ratings on on serious drives, you know, NAS drives and uh, and enterprise drives. That rating's been there for quite a while. I guess um, most people, I think, don't pay attention to it because the reality is that most people, uh, you know, even in a NAS, they're probably not going to be writing 180 terabytes a year to an individual disk. That's a hell of a lot, and you know, that's the low end number. That's for the low end NAS drives, like the WD Reds or the Iron Wolf Non Pro. Uh, once you go to the Red Pros or the Iron Wolf Pro, uh, well, I know the Iron Wolf Pro is 300 terabytes a year, but, you know, one, so you're only doubling it. And what this really boils down to is if we assume like, you know, completely ideal workloads where you get the highest throughput you possibly can, uh, 300 terabytes a year is going to boil down to uh, somewhere around like 15 to 20% usage. Like, you know, use it for a minute, don't use it for another minute, uh, you know, that that kind of thing. Yeah, you can absolutely overrun that, but is overrunning that the reason people are having trouble with SMR? Hell no. Probably not. No, exactly. definitely not. People are absolutely having performance issues with uh, you know, the Seagate SMR drives and ZFS arrays and conventional RAID arrays both. I've been seeing the complaints all the time ever since Seagate first introduced the archive drives. And, you know, the wiser heads in the channels would be like, ah, you don't want those things for what you're doing. But people are like, ah, they're a little cheaper. I'm just going to do it. And then they whine and complain about the performance. But they work. The performance might suck, but they work. The drives don't get kicked out of the array. It's just the Western Digital Reds that are getting kicked out of arrays. So there's a firmware bug in there somewhere that hasn't been fixed. And Western Digital is just trying to play off. It's not something that's endemic to SMR and SMR alone. SMR sucks for the purpose, but Western Dig also has a firmware bug that they're not owning up to. All right, well, let's move on then. Just a quick mention for the Patreon. You can support the creation of these episodes at patreon.com slash two underscore five admins, or you can just go to two.5admins.com and there's a link there. So let's do some free consulting. You can send your questions for Jim and Alan to show at 2.5admins.com. But for this first episode, I've got a question for you. So I've got uh, my data backup pretty much sorted on-premises. And by that, I mean in my flat. Anything that's important is backed up to, I think, five different spinning drives. But I don't have anything off-site set up. Now, what most people suggest to people like me who've got about two terabytes of data is just set up a Raspberry Pi with uh, an external hard drive in someone's house, someone that you trust, and just leave it alone. You know, sync it all up first, then take it over to their house, plug it in, and just then R-sync over to it or whatever. Pretty simple solution. Except that I basically don't trust anyone. I don't trust anyone to either not have their kids pull the cables out of it or have them think, mm, well, I could just put a bit of my own data on there, and or maybe I could just do this and just do that and start messing with it. So it's not a good situation that I don't trust anyone with this. So I'm going to have to pay. But two terabytes is quite a lot 
when you're talking about paying someone to store it. So what would you two do in my situation? Bear in mind, I want to pay as little as possible. It's not that sensitive, this data, but it's stuff that I definitely don't want to lose. So what would you do? What format is this data in right now? Lots of different random file types, lots of big wave files. Right, but like, uh, what, what file system is it on? It's, uh, well, a combination of ZFS and some external drives that are FAT32. So, I mean, I could use ZFS potentially. Right, because uh, that does open up a couple of options, uh, especially now that ZFS native encryption is a thing, uh, you could have the files be somewhere where people wouldn't be able to access them easily, uh, where you, you would have to be less worried about the privacy of your data. Although, like you said, your your bigger concern is is the reliability of the remote site. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, all, the only people I know who've got reliable internet connections and, you know, jobs and stuff have got kids who are, they're going to start, you know, fucking with it. If the concern is like not malice, but, you know, just like, oh, you know, somebody played with it and pulled a cable out or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not really a backup if you're not monitoring it. And if you are monitoring it, then you'll know the same day if somebody pulls the cord and you're like, oh, hey, you know, can you check on my thing? Yeah, but then I don't want to have to hassle them all the time is the thing. I don't know. I kind of feel like you're painting yourself into a corner here. The other problem is that it's not necessarily um, that that I'm most worried about. I'm most worried about the kind of people who I know who have got decent enough internet connections are the kind of people who have just enough technical knowledge to get themselves in trouble and to get me in trouble by fucking with my Raspberry Pi because they'll think, oh, maybe I could use that as a, a Cody box or you know, maybe I could store some of my data on there or whatever. And I, I just don't trust anyone to leave it alone. Well, again, I feel like a lot of this is predicated on the idea that, you know, you don't have any insight into it. Um, if you know the minute somebody starts messing with your thing, then it becomes a lot less of an issue. But I mean, at the end of the day, probably it sounds like we need to move on from that. Uh, Joe either doesn't have friends or doesn't trust anybody. So <laughs> I think the point here is that Joe does not consider the friend thing an option. We need to move on from that. If we're moving on from that. Um, it's a little easier in the Windows world because there's a ton of personal services available like, uh, you know, Carbonite and what have you that don't cost too much. Um, for your case being that, you know, your Linux on the back end, uh, I think that uh, that means you should probably be looking at Backblaze. Uh, they have personal plans at like 60 bucks a year. Um, the price is per computer, not per, you know, gigabyte or terabyte stored. <sighs> I mean, you're probably okay there. I heard somebody make a disgusted noise though. Well, I've never really liked any service that doesn't charge you per gigabyte because their costs are mostly per gigabyte. And so, you know, like we've seen with way too many services in the past, when, when you're paying a fixed amount and then you start using a lot, they either have to raise the price on you or kick you off or something. Now, you know, two terabytes isn't going to be absurd. But it is going to grow. Right. Uh, but you're probably not going to be one of the users that they're going to consider abusing their service. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I've always felt more secure in a service where you're paying per gigabyte. But Joe's already shared part of his, you know, uh, part of his concern is that he's a cheapskate. So, yeah. you know, we're trying to work within Joe's limitations here. If he doesn't want to have to switch services constantly because each service is uh, not able to store two gigabytes for only $6 a month, then <laughs> it can also be a problem. Well, I mean, like you could also do rsync.net, which is certainly per terabyte. Um, if you're not doing ZFS replication. That's about 2.5 cents. 
my first reaction when somebody wants backups is Tarstamp, but it's 25 cents a gig. So I back up my taxes and my personal data. I have like, you know, a gig of data in there and I pay my 25 cents a month and it's great. But yeah, for your bulk stuff, you need some other solution. Because rsync.net is starting to offer ZFS Receive as a service. They've been offering it for a few years now, actually. It's more expensive, though. Right. And that's one of those things you absolutely have to find the deep link to get in there. But um, the uh, ZFS pricing for small setups like this, you can get a terabyte for 60 bucks a month. But, uh, you know, even if that pricing holds above one terabyte, that would still have Joe paying 120 bucks a month. And that's clearly not going to happen. Right. Yeah, that one doesn't make sense. Yeah, and obviously I looked at Dropbox and Google Drive, but that's just ridiculous when you get into the terabytes with them. I mean, I I still think we're really looking at Backblaze here. I have the problem that this isn't a problem for me because I have petabytes of storage scattered all over the world already. Yeah. And it's it's not something I've had to worry about. Yeah, so maybe I just have to talk one of you two into letting me have some of your space on the server. It's only two terabytes. It's nothing. Uh, what happened? You don't have any friends that you trust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe... Um, with with ZFS encryption, maybe that would be the way to do it and just tell them, do not touch it. Well, in particular, you know, uh, with ZFS encryption is you encrypt it with your key. My system doesn't have your key. So the only thing I could do to your data is delete it, which is the biggest thing you're worried about. But again, as long as you find out that it was deleted uh, quickly enough, then, you know, you have lots of other backups. The chances are happening the same day as your flat burns down or whatever, then... <laughs> So I, I drilled down a little further, and if we're going with Joe has no friends, Joe trusts nobody, Joe is cheap, and Alan refuses to trust something that's per computer rather than per terabyte, uh, Backblaze has per gigabyte pricing for uh, server or NAS backup. And if Joe were to use that, then for two terabytes, we assume that he deletes 10 gigs a month, uh, downloads 10 gigs a month, uploads 10 gigs a month, so it's relatively stable or whatever. Uh, you know, we're looking at 156 bucks for 12 months. So um, it's certainly more than he would have spent for the per computer. Um, I don't think that's necessary, probably, but it's an option. It's still cheaper than you'll find just about anywhere else. Yeah, $13 a month isn't bad. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe this per computer, because if they go bust or whatever, that seems to me the biggest risk. Either they kick me off. Right. And Backblaze is is doing enough custom stuff to try to get that price per gigabyte down uh, to make sense. And and like you said, two gigabytes, you're not one of the people they're going to consider an abuser of that uh, per computer. Well, two terabytes, but still, they're yeah, not right. going to consider that an abusive at all. Right. And uh, it's not like Backblaze just popped up yesterday. They've been around for quite a while now. Yeah. All right. But supposing I do find someone to trust then that makes it much simpler right so what would you do in that case well if you're willing to have everything on zfs on your end then we just set up zfs replication and uh, everything becomes extremely easy um if you're on a new enough version of zfs if you're on the the 0.8 line uh, on both ends then you can do zfs encryption as well as the replication and the really cool thing about that is you have the key the person who receives your backups doesn't need to have the key. Uh, the replication occurs between devices. It's extremely efficient. And all of the data is still there on the remote end. It's still, uh, you know, validated with uh, Fletcher 4 checksums on both ends. But what the host can't do is read it. Yeah, when it's encrypted, you have the checksum and a Mac as part of the AES GCM that encrypts it. Right. So you actually uh, protect both. And yes, the really cool thing with the way ZFS encryption works is if I've received your data set and it's encrypted, I can still do a scrub and a resilver and the normal operations 
uh, without having to have your encryption key. Correct. Whereas a lot of other systems, um, in order to verify the data, you'd have this problem of you need the decryption key. But because what ZFS did for the native encryption was split the checksum in half, and half of it is the, the Fletcher 4 or whatever checksum you're using of the ciphertext, and the other half is the Mac for the plain text. So you can verify both haven't changed, but it means when I'm doing a scrub or a resilver, I can verify just the Fletcher 4, know that the on-disk data hasn't changed, and so the encryption hasn't changed, but I don't ever have to have the encryption key. Yeah, and you know you have all the other benefits of CFS on both ends that way as well. Um, you're not just talking about the current condition of your file system. You're replicating snapshots, which means it's very easy to, for example, have one yearly, three monthlies, 30 dailies, and 30 hourlies on both ends. And uh, if you have a problem, even if it's a catastrophic human error rather than a catastrophic machine error, uh, you can very easily go in and cherry pick data out of you know any one of those snapshots or roll back to them completely. Yeah, and then the... Um other big advantage you get there is the ZFS replication protocol is just so much better than anything else. Like any other backup protocol, you're basically having to go through, walk through every file and be like, did you change? Did you change? Did you change? Mm -hmm. uh, and either you're depending on the timestamps or you're actually having to check some every file every time. Whereas ZFS is just like, give me every block that changed between this date and this date. Done. And sends it. Yeah, to give you a really good real-world example of how much faster ZFS replication is than rsync, and don't get me wrong, I love rsync. I've been in love with rsync for longer than some of our listeners have probably been alive. Uh, it's a beautiful utility within its limits. But uh, for an example of how much faster ZFS replication is, I took a workload that's actually very, very well suited to rsync. I used the Steam library in my op directory, and I rsynced that to another target, and then I did another rsync run where basically nothing had changed. And it took rsync 15 seconds to go through and figure out that nothing really had changed and complete. Fine. Uh, then I did the same thing with ZFS. I did an initial replication of my 156 gig Steam library and didn't change anything and then did another replication that completed in two seconds. So we're talking like eight times faster on one of the absolute best possible workloads for rsync, where you have not too many files of relatively decent size, but not enormously huge. Now, then if you want to look at something that's more favorable for ZFS replication and less favorable for rsync, I did the same thing with a two terabyte VM image. And, uh, you know, doing the same thing, a replication with basically nothing changed. Uh, ZFS finished it again in two seconds. RSync on the same file would have taken uh, several hours to finish a replication because it has to grovel through every single block of the file looking to see, has this checksum changed? All right, all right. Well, let's not turn this into too much of a ZFS love fest. I think we should uh, get out of here. Probably should have just named the podcast ZFS Love Fest. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yes. It's funny, when I said I was going to do a show uh, with you two to one of my friends, his first question was, oh, is it about BSD or ZFS? <laughs> yeah, the first, the first reaction I got uh, was, when it comes out, is it going to be ZFS heavy because it's you and Jim? <laughs> well, we've got to try and avoid that in the future, but I somehow think uh, that's not going to happen. All right, well, remember, you can email us show at 2.5admins.com and otherwise just go to the website, 2.5admins.com. Everything's there. So we'll be back in two weeks then. Until then, I've been Joe. I've been Jim. I'm Ellen. See you later.